The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. And as we enter into our passage this morning, we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, as is fitting at this time of year. But we're going to be seeing this, this example of someone who is advanced in years, um, who is looking forward to the future and, and wondering what's next, and is able to, in this interaction, this brief interaction with the child Jesus, to have just a confidence and a peace and a hope about what is coming next. And, and that can be really hard to grasp at times, uh, because this life, this world that we live in, uh, I think is often very dark. And last week we looked at just this passage in one of the most dramatic moments in Scripture in which Jesus is on this mountaintop with his uh, three closest disciples, and he is transfigured, he's transformed, He, he begins to glow and shine in this divine light that is beyond explanation, and this fleeting moment reveals something about the life and ministry of Jesus that is uh, both a staple of the predictions of his coming and also the nature of his ministry, and that is that he has come to bring light into darkness. He's come to bring hope to the hopeless and, and purpose beyond this mortal existence. This time of year is, is dark, isn't it? I think two days from now or maybe three days from now is the, the shortest day of the year. Does anyone else have a hard time with the, the, the really long nights? Yeah, you leave for work in the morning or you exit your home and it's dark and then you return and it's dark and it seems like the darkness it can just be oppressive. And in the same way, when we look at the world at large, sometimes we have that same sense, that same feeling. I wonder, when you look around at, at, at the world we live in right now, does it have the sense that it's getting lighter or darker? Better or worse? Maybe many of you would have different answers to that. I think that it's possible to believe that, that based on all the rapidly changing technology, all the new things that, that come into our lives, that things are just on this curve up and to the right. Like they're just getting better and better and better. We're advancing, we're progressing, we're getting better at life and living. Uh, how many of you would agree with that? You don't have to raise your hands, but, but I wonder if that's actually true. As a society, as a world, morally, culturally, spiritually, are we progressing up and to the right on that graph or not. I think even about technology, and it can be so tempting to, to look at things like our, our social media platforms or our cell phones or our automobiles or all these different things and think to ourselves something like, this is just a tool. Like, it, it's amoral. It doesn't actually have a, a positive or negative influence on my life. It depends how I use it. It's a tool that can be used for good or for evil. Anyone ever thought something like that? Yeah, so you think that, and, and to some extent that's true, and these things can have a positive or a negative outcome depending on how they're used. But the truth is, any creation, any, um, any development is going to have a couple characteristics that make them not entirely neutral. The first is that any creation is imbued with the values of its creator. And so if its creator has godly values, then it has more potential to have a positive effect on our life. And if its creator does not have those same values, then even these advancements, these developments, have a, a negative potential. The other thing that's true of a lot of things that, that we see in our society, these things that we, we assume are advances, is that tools of any kind have the ability to shape those that use them. So first, they're imbued with the values of the creator. Secondly, they have the ability to shape those that use them. What do I mean by that? I mean that when I hand my five-year-old son a hammer, it changes him. It, something happens. The extension of his arm becomes quite different. He feels the grip of that handle. He feels the weight. He feels the way the balance of that hammer wants, wants to do something. It wants to smash something, right? 
So he's changed. Though this tool is something that, that has creative purpose, it has the ability to create something better, apart from training, apart from discipline, apart from instruction, apart from being very intentional with this child, he will be more prone to destruction with that tool than to construction. Does that make sense? So even these things that we assume are neutral in life, there, there's this sense in which if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, if we're not purposeful to, to pursue things in a godly way, we will have a tendency to drift not toward righteousness and holiness, but away from it, even with the things that we use and possess. And in the same way, we can look at the progress of society, and though there are ebbs and flows, though there are glimpses of light, there's also the sense in which things can can become darker and darker as mankind drifts away from morality rather than toward it. This is our tendency. Like a child at the beach who's out in the water, if they're not intentional in planting their feet in the sand and looking back at the shore and setting their eyes on their parents' location again and again, they will drift, right? D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. People do not drift toward holiness. And as, as a society, as a world, this is, this is the prevailing sense that we look around and we see this, this constant battle where darkness seeks to overcome. And in the midst of that, as we reflect on, on 2022 and, and on this, this time that we're living in, we, we often don't like what we see because there is darkness in our world. If you've ever backpacked in the wilderness, you know that it can get really dark, and just the smallest amount of light can make a drastic difference. And for the people of Israel, what we see in Scripture is, is they are awaiting the coming of light. They are awaiting the, the dawn of the Messiah coming, the birth of Christ. They're coming, and they're waiting for this Messiah to come, and their, their predictions of the coming of the, of the Messiah are full of hope, full that light will come in, and this light of, of Jesus, of the Messiah coming, is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. But for the people of Israel awaiting this hope, it had been some 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. 400 years of waiting, wondering, hoping, and over time, that, that waiting will begin to feel more and more hopeless, more and more dark, until one night, in a dark stable, two scared teenagers, newlyweds, deliver a baby boy, wrap him in strips of linen and lay him on the straw. And on that not so silent night, the light of the world is born. Light enters into darkness. Isaiah 9, 6 says this. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This week, as we do every, every year at this time of year, we're going to celebrate Christmas. We're going to celebrate together on Christmas Eve and, and on Christmas Day this miraculous miracle of Jesus Christ bursting in light into darkness and coming into our existence. And we're going to celebrate all the miraculous aspects of this, the angels singing, the, the, the shepherds being led to the side of the stable, these wise men coming to, to deliver gifts. But today what I want to look at is a passage in this Christmas story that we often overlook. And that's the story of this man, Simeon 
who gets to meet Jesus, one of the elder saints that the children talked about in their pageant last week, one of these, these elder saints who gets to meet the newborn Jesus and he immediately knows that light has come, that light and hope have come into the darkness. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And I'm going to read through this passage, and, and then we'll talk about it. So we'll read through it in its entirety, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. It says this. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up, that is Jesus. Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, op- who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. This is no ordinary dedication. This is something altogether different. And as we look at the context of this dedication, I want you to see a few things. I'll walk through it now, now verse by verse. At the end of eight days, Jesus is, is circumcised, it says in verse 21, and, and on that day, that was a very important ceremony, he'd be given his name, the name given him by the angel before uh, he was even conce- conceived in the womb. And so according to the law of Moses, each child, each male child would be circumcised on this, this eighth day, and this is not just a routine medical procedure. This was a way of, of parents demonstrating through their child that this child was consecrated to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a big deal. Uh, on Sabbath days in which basically nothing else could be done, these circumcisions could be performed and these children would be formally, to the public, given their name. And so Mary and Joseph, as parents of Jesus, despite their young age, uh, both very likely teenagers in a rural, blue-collar kind of upbringing, they are dedicated to God. And they are faithful to God. And they are going to raise their child, Jesus, according to God's word, which would actually probably be pretty easy if you think about it. Right? And so they are determined to raise this child according to, to what God's word has said. And what we see is they enter into Jerusalem some weeks later to dedicate this child to God. And so notice a, a, a few things first. As they bring the child into Jerusalem, as they, they walk up towards the Temple Mount, they are coming to bring an offering. And what this offering reveals about them is that they are very poor. You see in Scripture, uh, a a typical offering at the birth of a child would be a lamb and a dove. But there would be an allowance made for people who were especially impoverished to just give two pigeons instead of a lamb. What kind of gift do they give? They give this small gift. They give this gift that that demonstrates that that they are not rich. What we see in this just briefly is that God is much more concerned with the heart of the gift than he is with the grandeur of of the gift, the heart of the giver rather than the grandeur of the gift. And Mary and Joseph approach with open hands and give what they can. And so here we see that, that they come after 40 days after Mary's uh, 
period of uncleanness has passed. They're able to bring this male child to the temple. For baby girls, it was 80 days that they'd have to wait. I don't know why. I don't understand this uh, distinction. But during this time, she would take care of her new child and the affairs of her home, but could not come to the temple. So those six weeks have passed. And Mary and Joseph are just five or six miles away in Bethlehem. And they start walking towards Jerusalem for the ceremony of dedication. And as they go, they're ascending to Jerusalem, to the temple. And as they're ascending, they, they are singing these psalms of ascent. This is what people do is they go up from everywhere in Israel. You're going up to Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount. And as they walk up with excitement and uh, fervor, they're walking up and they're singing the psalms of ascent as they come to the high point, to the temple of God in the midst of Jerusalem, this place that, that doesn't contain God, and yet it is a place where in the past God's presence would abide in a, in a way that was tangible to the people of Israel, where they would come together and they would worship, and, and the worshipers would ascend physically, and their hearts would ascend and lift in the same way as they approach the temple. And so people like Mary and Joseph coming on this pilgrimage, they, they would be coming in with all this excitement, and there on the Temple Mount are crowds of people. Because what, what had happened over the years is that the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed, the people of Israel go into exile, and then they come back, and through Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild this, honestly, kind of basic block temple. But many years later, Herod the Great comes along and he wants to spruce it up. So he builds this giant complex on the Temple Mount with shops and areas where people can congregate and actually for the first time in history to give access to Gentile people to be around the temple just at the perfect timing when Jesus arrives on the scene. This is a huge moment in history. The Messiah is coming. Whether people know it or not, this baby is being carried up and this baby is the Messiah, light bursting into darkness. And so it continues the Simeon Song of Salvation. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What do we know about Simeon? Just this. This is all we know about him. We've never heard of him in Scripture before. We won't hear again from him. But what we know about him is it says he was righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. This is someone who genuinely loves God and loves others from his heart. He's devout, meaning, meaning that he carefully obeys the law to the best of his ability. This is a guy who, who lives his life to God in both his heart, his heart and his head. Both belong to the Lord, righteous and devout. Secondly, we see that Simeon was waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's patiently and prayerfully trusting God that God is going to do what he said the promise of Scripture that the Messiah is going to come will be fulfilled. He's read his Bible and he's convinced that the Messiah promised by the prophets would be coming soon. And so he'd be hoping, he'd be waiting for this, this comforter of Israel to come and break these chains of oppression. And while most would be looking for a military savior, a political savior, uh, someone with an army to join, Simeon is looking for something altogether different because he has been devoted to prayer and the Spirit of God has spoken to him. He's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He knew the Lord. And so he's blessed with this, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in his life, singled out by God to, to have this revelation that he will see the Messiah before he dies, before he goes to be with the Lord. He's heard the voice of God, this ordinary guy, that he will get to see the Christ. It says in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is an ordinary man who the Holy Spirit speaks to 
and is able to see something that is beyond and to hope for something that is beyond. And what happens after the ascension of Christ, what happens at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit gets poured out on all believers. All believers. So you, believer, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And in the, in the same way that he speaks to Simeon, that Simeon hears the voice of God, this is available to you, ordinary believers, to hear from and respond to God in your own life. And so here's Simeon. He's getting old. He's getting tired. He's, I'm, I'm sure in some sense, ready to go and be with God. And yet he's received this promise that he is going to get to see the Messiah. But after days and weeks, months, perhaps even years, I wonder if, Simon, if Simeon began to doubt, began to wonder how long would he have to wait? Would this promise be fulfilled? Would he actually get to see the Messiah? Likely after months and years of waiting, doubts would arise. Some of you are in periods of waiting right now. You've had the sense that the Lord's spoken something to you. I don't know what that is, some kind of instruction, some kind of a hope for your future or for your family. Maybe it's for someone in your family to come to know Jesus and you, you've been given this, this burst of confidence in that and yet you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a long time. And the question here and what we see revealed in Simeon is will we trust God in our waiting? Will we trust God in our waiting? Simeon is a man that trusted God despite the waiting. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So Simeon sees this young couple who've traveled into this big city in comparison to where they've come from, some 1,000 times the size of Nazareth. They walk into the city, they walk up the hill towards the temple, bringing their meager gift, and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he does what all elderly strangers seem entitled to do. He picks up the baby out of her arms. <laughs> I don't know why that's allowed. It's like if you have gray hair, sure, why not? Take my baby. Uh, and he takes this baby from Mary's arms and he looks at, at the closed eyes, the little clenched fists of this eight-pound baby boy. And he just starts singing. Like, this is strange. He sees something in this child. He sees something that, that nobody else is seeing. Crowds are walking past this child. And here's Simeon. He's been waiting and praying. And, and somehow, in a way I can't even understand, he, he realizes that this is what he's been waiting for, this baby. And he starts singing, and he says, Lord, I, I don't know the tune, so I can't sing it, okay? He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He's saying, I can die now in peace. I can go now with confidence and with hope. That's a really good place to be. I think the end for a lot of us is, is very fearful and frightening, and yet here we see an example of someone who is suddenly at peace, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What an amazing thing that Simeon has just spoken over this child. He, he doesn't look at Jesus and say, wow, look at all that hair. Or, or wow, he looks just like his mom. I don't know why. He doesn't look anything like you, Joseph. Uh, <laughs> But upon seeing this baby, Simeon says that he can depart this life in peace because he sees in this newborn baby that salvation has come and that light has burst into darkness. 
He has this hope that is beyond this life, this hope that's beyond this existence, and that's something that we all desperately need. What Simeon is declaring over this baby is that by this vulnerable child, God will pierce the darkness of this world and and cast out the darkness. That God's going to somehow deal with the brokenness and darkness of this world through this weak, vulnerable baby. And so Mary and Joseph just have to marvel at what was just said about him. I'll come to the implications of today. What, what, what is this all about? Like, how does this affect our lives at all? And what Christmas is all about, what this time of year is all about, is God's plan to do something, to break through the darkness and to bring light and hope and salvation to those that desperately need it. The birth of Jesus is God's plan to do something about sin and evil and suffering and death and to deal with it for good. And he's going to do it through this baby, through this child, Jesus. And somehow Simeon sees this, looks on this child, and he knows that God will stop the darkness. But how? He goes on to say in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed Then he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He looks on this child and he says, yes, this is the Messiah, the one that has brought salvation. You have this beautiful future promise of this son that will be a light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel and salvation is found in him. However, what awaits him, how he's going to accomplish this is through opposition and pain. And he says, therefore, mom, that's what awaits you as well. That's what is going to be experienced by you as well. So here's the natural question. When we look at this this child Jesus and we, we think about all the darkness in the world, we must wonder to ourselves, why did he come like this? Why did he come so vulnerable? Why did he come so, so weak? Why did he come so small? Why didn't he come conquering? Like if the darkness is so great, why didn't he come and just simply wipe away all the darkness? Why didn't he come prepared for battle? And when dark things happen, we, we tend to ask these kinds of questions. God, if you're real, why didn't you stop this? If Jesus came into the world, why didn't he come prepared to stop the darkness? Why did he come so weak? And here's the answer. If Christ had come in that first coming to destroy all the sources of evil in this world, guess what? None of us would be left standing. Not one of us. Why? Because, because this same sin, this corruption, this darkness that we've been talking about, it, what Scripture tells us is that it flows out of our hearts, that we're all guilty of these things. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And while we were yet sinners in his mercy, Jesus came not to destroy us, but to rescue us. Jesus came on that first Christmas not to be accepted, but to be opposed, to be rejected, to be destroyed, to be betrayed, tortured, and killed, to take the penalty of our sin upon himself, not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He came to take the rejection that that we deserve, based on our self-centeredness, our sin, our shame onto himself so that someday he can return at the end of all things without ending us. Christianity says that the darkness in us is is too great, too great to be overcome by our self-righteousness, by our, our attempts to fix it, to make it better. And therefore, Jesus Christ had to come, not to call the righteous into war against the unrighteous, but to save us. 
He didn't come to show us how to save ourselves from the darkness. He came to save us through his death on the cross. And so what did Jesus do? He came in weakness. He came in vulnerability. He came in in mortality, killable, to live among us, to identify with us in our weakness, to live a perfect sinless life so that when he went to the cross and died for us, it was enough. It was enough. At birth, Jesus would be uh, put in this rough wooden feed trough, but later he'll be nailed to a rough wooden cross. In Bethlehem, he's rejected by an innkeeper, but later a whole city will shout, crucify him. Here he's being carried up the temple steps, but later he'll descend the temple steps carrying his own instrument of execution, his cross. Here he's wrapped in old cloths, but then he'll be stripped of everything, all his possessions. Jesus Christ was rejected so that you and I can be accepted. And what makes Simeon stand out in Scripture is that he is ready. He is ready when Jesus comes to receive this salvation. He's been living this life of patient devotion to God, walking in his spirit so that when he sees Jesus, he recognizes his Savior and his need for salvation. And he says something powerful as he looks at this tiny baby boy. He says, now I can go in peace. Now I can depart. Now I'm not afraid to die. Why? Because if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, there is hope. There is hope beyond this life. There is a light of salvation piercing the darkness. And just as there was hope for Simeon in the temple that morning, there is hope for us. And that hope changes everything. Changes everything. Hope and confidence in God's word gives us strength to wait well. It gives us confidence in our future and purpose for our present. And so the question is for those of you who already know this hope, who know Jesus, it's what are we going to do with this? What scripture tells us is that if you are in Christ, you are the light of the world. God has called you to be the bearers of this light, to display this light to others that are dwelling in darkness. And as we come to the end of the passage, it says there's this prophetess Anna who's there at the temple as well. And she comes and she sees the baby Jesus. She's been waiting a long, long, long time, just like Simeon. And she looks at this baby Jesus and it says, Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, listen to this, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Christians know one thing. They know that that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And if he is the light of the world and we have lit the candle of our lives at that lamp, that great light that will cause us to live differently with a different accent in our lives. It will cause us to live in such a way that, that our lives penetrate the darkness, not in our own strength, not in our power, not because we're good enough, but because he dwells within us. And, and then we can go out and live alive, lives of, of love and service to others that reveal his goodness. The coming of Jesus brings light bursting into this darkness. And so if you know him as your Lord and Savior, that light resides in you. Do you live like it? Do you live to let that light shine? This year, as we come to a close in 2022, and as we enter into 2023, this is our calling. Let us be found ready, like Simeon, to light up the darkness for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, you are so, so good. And I just thank you for the light of the season as as darkness, physical darkness, surrounds us. I thank you for the hope of Christmas that you, looking upon our darkness, loved us, that you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son 
Lord, I thank you that if we believe in you, that we can have eternal life, that we can look forward with hope and we can live now with purpose because we are found in you. Oh God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the the hope and the light of this season. Lord, we love you and we glorify you. We dedicate ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.